The Weekend Variety Wireless. up for tomorrow evening uh, we have I reckon well about my favourite World Cup correspondent I've twisted his arm he offered actually and I said yes 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 please Ewan McCabe will talk about the World Cup he's got just such great knowledge and great stories he's the author of a book called World Cup Baby I can't recommend it highly enough it's just such a cracking read and should be better known it's a, he's a New Zealander and it's a New Zealand book but my word, um, the stories of the World Cup and his association with it, his life, basically. I don't think he's missed a game since 1978. That's right, not since 1978. Uh, and he's well into it. He'll be joining us live tomorrow evening. Uh, and about four years ago, it was four years ago, of course it was, um, he was a correspondent as well. And people were going, you know, turning up their nose um, like George Columbalis does on MasterChef, like a sneering chihuahua going, oh, sport? There's enough sport on the rest of the time. And then people listened to it and they said, ah, I see what you mean. So even if you're not a sporty type, I entreat you have a listen to Ewan McCabe. He and I will be talking about World Cup stuff. Uh, that'll be around about 9.30 mark tomorrow in Divvig's place. Divvig will shunt him to a little after 10 o'clock so the kiddies don't get frightened. <laughs> Oh, yeah, also tomorrow, Michael Portillo. I managed to get him because of the marketing act, basically. He's doing this, he's hosting a show starting next Saturday, June 30, on the Living Channel Sky, 8.30 p.m., there you go, um, about trains in England. He gets trains in England, he goes around, someone films him. That's a show. It's fascinating, actually. Uh, but a great opportunity to talk to him about politics. He was very much a Thatcherite and very much uh, a Brexiteer. Um, which in some polite company is, you're literally Hitler. So I asked him. But I'm pretty sure that historians, when they look at Margaret Thatcher, will think that she was one of the two or three greatest prime ministers of the 20th century. It's an interesting chat. That'll be Michael Portillo, former cabinet minister under the Thatcher government, uh, around about 10.30 tomorrow evening. Later on this hour, the end of the world. Is it? Will it be? Okay. Uh, here's a thing that happened in 1859. It was so extraordinary, it was given a name. The Carrington event, a solar ma a coronal mass ejection, a, a sun belch. Uh, we get hit by them occasionally. They create aurora. But they come in different strengths and classes, as they say. In 1859, we got hit by one, the Earth, directly. 1859. It melted telegraph wires. We haven't been hit by one that strong since, but since 1859, it barely needs stating, there are a lot more wires around. What on earth could we do about it if it did hit us in this day and age? What kind of effect would it have? Uh, I understand satellites would fry, basically, unless they could hide them somewhere. I don't know how. Um, what might happen? 1859, a Carrington event, if it happened today. And, just to frighten the children, uh, in 2012, 
we just missed one. It went past. It was just dumb luck. It could have hit us. Uh, and I'm not sure if we really know what might have happened. It didn't make news because it missed us. But what kind of preparedness is possible for such an event? Okay, we have Nirmal Nair later on this hour um, to discuss what, what might happen. Nirmal Nair is an associate professor at Auckland University and he specialises in this sort of thing. Computer engineering and electrical engineering and safety and robustness is his specialist subject. Next up though... Australia's relationship with its iconic animal, its symbol, that in the emus on the crest, isn't it? The British have got a unicorn. They killed all them off, didn't they? Uh, fascinating movie. Uh, it's a hard watch, I've got to say. Kangaroo. Aussies slaughtering their national icon. We have the director with us after the commercial break. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. the bush kangaroo and probably the first time many New Zealanders saw how kangaroos can be treated and that's when Skippy goes to fly the helicopter it's actually a bottle opener the paw of the kangaroo Skippy Skippy fly the helicopter it's actually one of those bottle openers and I think you probably still buy them Kangaroo is a movie which will make a lot of people bristle it's about the treatment of kangaroos the maker of the movie is Kate Clare, C-L-E-R-E, if you want to look her up. I've seen this movie. It is disturbing, but I have some important questions as well. We'll get to those in time. It's claimed that this is the largest wildlife slaughter on the planet. I immediately went, oh, fish would be bigger, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's, a ma it's the land-based wildlife slaughter, the largest land-based wildlife slaughter, that's correct. That would come as a surprise to a lot of people. Oh, look, when we were making the film, that was one of the first interviews we actually did with a government scientist, and he just mentioned that kind of fairly dryly. We just kept filming and walked out of the interview and went, did you hear that? It's like it's a disturbing like, pub quiz question, isn't it? Yeah, like nobody in Australia knows that. I mean, nobody in the world knows that. That is just, was an outrageous moment where we went, well, this film is going to be so different than we first imagined. Yeah. Well, outside of the sea, I wonder what comes second. Uh... I don't know. Uh, well, uh, kangaroos. It'd be a hell of a drop off, uh, probably. Yeah. They? Yeah. The thing with the kangaroo numbers that are being shot, they do seem to be doing okay in the wild. I've been to Australia and see lots of kangaroos. So, that amount of slaughter, are they particularly fecund? Are they are they doing well despite? I've got to ask. Right. It's interesting because there's lots of myths around kangaroos being incredibly fecund, as you say there. They are uh, marsupials and they have one joey over a year and then they probably have about eight in a lifetime and probably about two of those survive. They're not particularly fecund, no. When we when were making the film, we found out from scientists that there is local and regional extinction happening right now with kangaroos in Australia 
that 90% of the population in Australia lives on the coast. And as we move further and further away from the coast, all the urban development and land clearing and wineries and farms and this and that and everything that goes in starts to clear kangaroos off landscape and so the scientists are telling us that there's less and less kangaroos like if you were to arrive in Sydney and want to go and see a mob of kangaroos in the bush you would have to travel quite far inland to get that experience okay. and people are you know anecdotally people say oh yeah I drove from Canberra to Adelaide last year and I saw one there's really less and less kangaroos on the landscapes to be seen uh. and but if you are in some parts of Australia they have larger mobs and you know anecdotally there's um, some report of abundant populations which is fantastic because this is our national wildlife we want there to be kangaroos in Australia this is the number one thing pretty much tourists want to see when they come to Australia mm. and that's a 42 billion dollar industry so we want there to be kangaroos in Australia what were their numbers previously? And we're talking, well, since the arrival of human beings. I mean, that's 60,000, 50,000 years, if you like. So um, yeah. what were their natural numbers well, with uh, that incursion? New South Wales is four times the size of England. Mm. So counting kangaroos is formidable. There's anecdotal data only. We only started counting, in fact, kangaroos in the 70s. And so there's no actual figures. To know the numbers would be important to how to proceed, yeah. whether you should be shooting them at all. Are they really a pest? Is it actually possible to count the number of kangaroos? They do have to have a bit of a guess, don't they? Yeah, they do. Well, uh, originally the kangaroo uh, counting started because California didn't want to import any wildlife that wasn't sustainable. So it sort of started from an industry perspective, the whole count in itself. But national and international scientists are looking at the current methodology that we've been using for the last 50, 60 years and saying it's completely flawed. And in fact from the raw data before it's extrapolated and things they're finding that the numbers are in serious decline like across new south wales so what we found in the film was that debate isn't happening i guess that's what the film's really about is is this debate happening are we listening to a really wide response from scientists or are we just listening to kind of industry beat up to keep an industry going now because really what started off as farmers clearing kangaroos off their land for perceived competition with agriculture has become a outright industry with looking for new markets in china and mm. you know so it's kangaroo it's, meat kangaroo fur kangaroo skin all those things yeah okay but are they really a pest your movie makes a case that they aren't but they would have to compete because they need to live they need to eat they would be competing with especially sheep well it's interesting because we did in the film make a huge effort to uh, interview everybody uh, the shooters the farmers politicians scientists indigenous people and you know that uh, idea of them competing with agriculture is has been scientifically questioned and in drought for sure and you know we do face drought but also in drought uh, kangaroos can lose 50% of their population so you know it's an interesting idea and also that whole paradigm came from the uh, when white people first came and really wanted Australia to look like Europe yeah. So we arrived and we went, oh, don't really want this flora and fauna at all. Would prefer just kind of green, grassy England. And pretty much started wiping out native flora and fauna, pulling down all the trees, getting rid of all the animals. So kind of that paradigm, instead of kind of looking at how to work in Australia agriculturally, has really continued. And I think in the film, the scientists now saying in Australia, looking forward, saying, is this the best way to go forward? This is the country we live in. One of the scientists who's worked for a long time with kangaroos said, really, if we looked at bringing sheep into Australia today, 
we wouldn't because of the because of the distraction. The scientists that we talked to in the film really were looking at, uh, are saying let's look at the whole landscape as it is, as Australian fragile yeah. wilderness, and see what's the best way to go forward. Can they coexist sustainably with agriculture? Yeah, well, uh, one of the farmers we spoke to up in uh, southwestern Queensland, he had culled and killed kangaroos on his property for like about 20 years and then they decided that that wasn't what they wanted to be doing at all. They stopped culling kangaroos so for 10 years now they haven't been killing them and the numbers have been the same. So yeah it would appear that they can and there are of course farmers doing that and finding it totally fine. Terry Owen who has some huge properties in Australia is managing coexistence with the wildlife and says it's totally fine. So you know it's it's a conversation I think farmers should be having. It would you know looking at the real facts and not just kind of the cultural paradigm. I think that's probably the difference. Yeah um, the, a strong point is made that it's received knowledge passed down. They're a pest. Oh, they're a bloody pest. They're like that damn thing. It's a bloody pest. Go shoot it. Is that the prevailing attitude in the farms? We were really surprised out in the country how sort of hated kangaroos were. Like, people want, like, three, and that's about it. You know, like a few decorative kangaroos somewhere sort of in view in the distance, and that's about it. So, yeah, it's a really interesting cultural paradigm, and I think in a... in some ways that was one of the most interesting things about making this film is they're like really quite gentle, quiet herbivores that live in their own mobs and carry their babies around their pouches and and yet this kind of massive, cruel, destructive industry goes on every night. You've got some fabulous archives. Yes, yeah, yeah. From yeah. the day. Yeah, yeah. Markets for kangaroo meat, both for home and overseas, opened up in 1958. Much of the meat goes for pet food. This one shop in Mosman, Sydney, sells 1,400 pounds of kangaroo meat a week. That's about 60 whole carcasses. This customer feeds her 13 poodles on 36 pounds of kangaroo meat a week. Well, it it worries me because I think they're gorgeous animals. They really are. They're a symbol of Australia. That was a great find. And, of course, because kangaroos are such a key part of the Australian culture, they are, there is archive, yeah. I've got to say, a lot of the film is, it's disturbing, it's shocking. Are you concentrating too much on the shock value of the dead animals and them being shot? I think we just were sort of telling the story as it came to us, in a way. Like, we sort of thought this is a magnificent story because it's a such a widely respected internationally cultural icon how fascinating is that and then you know this is what the whistleblowers came forward and said this is actually what's happening in our life every Mm. night and we thought boy these are the stories people don't know you know and i guess that's what we were telling that's stories that people don't know is any kangaroo killing acceptable to you well i mean i I don't, I don't. I haven't really got like a sort of big scientific historical perspective on that. I just think that we really wanted to put forward the idea that if kangaroos are our greatest natural asset, how do we want to move forward with that? Okay. You also make a case, a hygiene case, the E. coli salmonella. Yeah. Mm, yes. Has uh, been found in the kangaroo. It's described why this is the case. We won't go into all the details. But are you overplaying your hand in the movie with a bit of mission shift? It's about we shouldn't kill these kangaroos. They're iconic. We can exist with them sustainably. To add in, oh, by the way, the meat's dangerous. 
Well, yeah, I'll tell you where that story started coming from was a shooter rang us up. And, you know, it's very hard to get hold of all these people to make it when you're making a documentary. So when a shooter who's, you know, from the outback rings you and says, I've got a story to tell you and I really, you know, I really want to tell you this, we were like, oh, okay, that's going to be really interesting. Mm. So what he told us was that when they started shooting kangaroos in the wild, it was for pet food uh, when the industry started. So it was kind of fine how they did it and they eviscerate them out in the bush and they travel on the back of trucks, empty, open Utes basically, and dust flies in, and it was for pet food, and that was all fine. Like we shoot deer here for our own consumption, right? And you know, these kangaroos are then travelled over hundreds of kilometres back to the chiller by two hours after sunrise. So that was how it worked. What his biggest concern was is that now, because there's export industries pushing to grow, that they've do it across the summer. Now in Queensland. The summer can be like 35 degrees at night. It's not cold. And so we're talking about the shooters trying to keep this meat clean as it bounces around the back of the truck over 10 hours and that sort of heat through the dust back to the chillers two hours after sunrise. So we thought, boy, that's a story Australians certainly don't know and people around the world don't know. And we thought that was a really interesting story to tell. And then we found out that, you know, Russia had stopped importing it. We did not know that. And then, you know, even last week we were in the Netherlands and a supermarket shut down taking kangaroo meat into there because they found salmonella and stuff in the meat. So that was just kind of something that came up as we, you know, you just kind of research for everything and see what you find. Yeah. If it was a dangerous meat because of the bacterial inclusions, people would be getting sick. Are there reports of this? I, I don't know, actually, the reports of finding out what's happening in Australia itself, and I probably would assume that it's not all the meat. I just think they can't stop contamination getting in. Okay. Whether it's in everything, I'm not sure. All right. Uh, a very famous Australian, Peter Singer. You've got him on your side, and, <laughs> and he's in the movie as well. He's a philosopher and an animal rights advocate, you could say. Listeners, if you haven't heard of him, look him up. He's a very interesting philosopher. His thoughts on this, I suppose, are rather predictable, isn't it? It is an unusual story that we would cut up our wildlife to feed our dogs and cats. That's one of the things he talked about. The other idea he had was that the clubbing of seals in Canada that was so controversial around the world and really stopped the import of seal fur and stuff over international controversy is really what's happening in Australia, but because it's happening at night in the dark, uh, no one can see it, he said if people only knew that it would be the same controversy as the seals. Mm. Although there's no killing of an animal that really looks good, though. I Well, I don't suspect so, but the sort of clubbing of... I think the, the, even the government did a report in 2014 on the violence, I guess. That's not what they said, but on the... Um, uh, killing or the humane killing of joeys because joeys are sort of a byproduct of the killing of kangaroos. They, mm. as you know, they live in the mother's pouch from a tiny sort of bean type shape until they actually mm. look way too big to get in. <laughs> so when the mother's killed and the joey's not used because it hardly has any meat on it, there's some method that the shooters have to use to get rid of that. So there's like banging their heads on the back of the utes or um, stamping on their heads. There's just a lot of what we would what the industry calls kind of collateral damage to joeys and i think that's what he was referring to right it looks awful you show that in the movie Is we it? don't show it actually but we show i thought you all, did well we show like a bits of it like i don't want to put the audience off it this is <laughs> we did pull back on a lot of gruesome material yeah but uh yeah possibly this this one it's yeah. gruesome enough well you should have been in the edit suite uh yeah okay but i must ask you, 
it, it looks gruesome, but is it actually quick? Um, well, they say it, like the one of the ex-roo shooters that came forward to talk to us said that it's it's kind of a really really uh, violent death, and because you can do it two or three times before the animal loses consciousness, like be bad. so it's not like that quick. And the other issue that certainly wasn't quick, and these other guys came forward to tell us was. When you're shooting kangaroos at night on a truck out in the wild and you, uh, they're like 100, 200 metres away, um, you often miss. And so like a kangaroo, and one of the shots in the film is of a kangaroo with a big kind of shoulder injury, I guess bullet wound, and, you know, it had been, when they took it to the vet, the, this couple found it, they took it to the vet, and it had been like that for about two weeks, and so it was like full of maggots, and it had just yeah. been trying to bounce around and It was a bad living. shot. It didn't kill it. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I think that that really happening, and the industry says that that hardly ever happens, but uh, the whistleblowers are thinking that that's probably 35 to 40% of animals killed in the wild. Yeah, so. not everyone shoots and hits their target. Well, it, you know, it must be really hard in the dark on your own <laughs> at night in the truck out yeah. in the wilderness. And these guys are like, they're very shy herbivores. They're not, you know, even though they stand still when they're blinded mm. in the eyes, they're still like a long way away. Yep. Okay. Why not farm them? Is that a, a possibility? No, it's not. They've tried to uh, farm kangaroos and it's never been uh, something that they can do. They have a sort of mus muscle myopia where they're, um, they basically die of fright mm -hmm. in stressful situations. So they've never been able to be farmed, so they're always taken from the wild. Yeah, even deer are difficult, aren't they? Right. I mean, it's amazing how domesticated our domesticated animals are. Oh, totally. And, you know, they can jump, like, huge fences. and You know, I mean, it's yeah. just they're kind of a magnificent species that really has evolved to fit the Australian landscape over the years. And so, you know, I guess they're going to have to evolve into climate change and all the other things that are happening as well. Yep. Pretty hardy and adaptable things, though, we shall see. It's, uh, yeah. They've made a living in Australia and a good one. Not that Australia's all desert, but they can even exist in pretty harsh climates. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's 70 different species of kangaroos I was just going well. to ask, because it's kangaroo, but that's that's one word for a lot of different species, it isn't is, it? It is, it is, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, some would be more threatened than others, yes. locally endangered or, or yeah. range-restricted. Yeah. Well, Australia does have one of the largest mammal extinction, you know, worst mammal extinction rates in the world, so not proud of that. And there are species of kangaroos that have become extinct. So they range from, like, the tiny ones that can fit in your hand to ones that are, like, seven foot tall, way taller than you. Mm. So uh, the killing mostly in Australia is for f only four of the species. But, uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of different species that, you know, you sometimes and, some you know, you're lucky enough to see or recognise. Right. Well... It is a fascinating, in a gruesome way, relationship that yes, Australia yes. has with its iconic animal. Yeah, yeah. It's symbol in so many ways. Yeah, I know. That's that's the sort of unknown and kind of unusual part of the story. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Kate Clare. The film is Kangaroo. Go see. But I've got to say, occasionally it's a hard watch, as I think you can imagine. Yeah. Australia, what's your favourite sport? Football. Smack. Pie. Animal. Kangaroos. And what's your favourite car, Australia? Holden. Let me see, that's football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding cars, huh? We love football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding cars. Football, meat pies. The kangaroos are wonderful, fuzzy, natural parts of our environment. They're delightful, they're maternal, caring with their joeys, and they're also a pest that should be eliminated wholesale. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. 
The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. In 1859, a thing happened that was so remarkable, it's been given a name, and it's part of uh, the effect of a coronal mass ejection. That's when the sun belches, basically, and sends us um, electromagnetic radiation and um, um, ionic particles and all that sort of stuff. Uh, It created some havoc back then, but what would happen if it happened today? Uh, 1859, in the course of solar evolution, that is not even yesterday, it's less than a second ago. So these things we should assume are relatively frequent. We, I think we dodged one in 2012. Now our reliance on electricity to do anything and everything, including the internet, what would happen if one of these things hit us and what did happen in 1859? Nirmal Nair is from the Auckland University, Computer and Electrical Engineering, and you have a special interest. I've seen your research subjects in um, the robustness of electrical supply, so you'd be familiar with this thing called the Carrington event. Nirmal? Yes, Graham, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, right up my alley. So I'm an electrical engineer, so I try to keep the lights on, but uh, try to, uh, my research interests are in keeping the lights on when there's a lot of uh, dramatic uh, impacts from nature. And um, just like the situation you're describing in 1859. Now, this was a coronal mass ejection. What, What happens? Why is it a dangerous thing? The sun is a very dynamic uh, kind of a generator, if I may use that word, and uh, it has a lot of activity going all the time. And uh, two of the activities are basically solar flares, which we kind of uh, see as light and, uh, you know, the aurora in the north, uh, Mm. northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere and things like that. And primarily that particular event, uh, it travels at the speed of light and sun is somewhere around 146 uh, million kilometers away so it takes about eight minutes or 20 seconds or something like that Mm. to get that event so that's one event which is quite frequent and uh, it happens but the one which you are describing which is the carrington event is a very specific event which is called as uh, the cme which is the coronal mass um, ejection ejection yes that's right and um, so the biggest significant one happened in 1859 which is called as a carrington one so basically what happens is uh, this is uh, to do with the magnetic structure of the sun and sun is a magnetic uh, creature or a generator Mm -hmm. and at times what happens is uh, there's a lot of magnetic activity happening it's like an elastic kind of bound and you can see a lot of internet videos around cm quite dramatic actually and uh, so generally these events do happen but the earth directed ones are quite not that frequent mm-hmm. we could miss them most of the time uh, the sun doesn't care where it spits these things it's just a matter of dumb luck isn't it whether it hits us or not most of the time yes and and so, so there's two part to it one is the intensity of the cme which is uh, quite varied and uh, there are degrees of cmes and things like that mm-hmm. that's number one and the second thing is um, you know it should be earth directed and uh, with a whole bunch of magnetic material just bombarding straight to the earth's the magnetosphere and um, in 1859 uh, the kind of infrastructure we had was uh, the electric telegraph Right, we used that for communication. We did not have grid electricity then. Or satellites. 
No, no, not really. Oh. Not really. <laughs> not then. Not then. Uh, it's a whole new world now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think uh, the CME was observed um, to cause some effect on um, the telegraphic poles, you know, um, uh, which was used then. And uh, there have been, um, you know, reports of fires and things like that then. So that was the first known uh, oh. effect. And uh, the Carrington is uh, much uh, for your viewers. You can They can just go to the Google and check out all these fantastic videos and even NASA has some fantastic videos I as I was just preparing for this piece here I just had a look at it and uh, that was pretty good actually mm. yeah, which yeah. particular video are you looking at uh, this is from the nasa.gov yeah. and uh, if you put a Google there and ask that uh, you know um, search for solar flares and CME right. they show the difference between what a solar flare is mm -hmm. and what a CME is okay uh, and um, that's uh, you know authentic NASA yeah. the real reason the incentive for me to get you in here is in 1859 the uh, telegraph was as good as it got uh, as far as this stuff went today our reliance is just so massively electricity based what would be the effects on our society today if 1859 happened again and is that as bad as it could get Right. Uh, you can see some glimpses in this century around uh, events which happen. So uh, I'll try to answer this in two parts. One, okay. one on the electricity. I think I'll answer the electricity bit first and then address the communication bit. I think the closest we got was 1989. Mm -hmm. So this was March 9th. So we had a CME event um, hit in the U.S. basically. Took out part of the Canadian grid. This is the electricity grid. It shut out the system altogether. And they came back and running after um, almost nine or ten hours back, mm -hmm. you know, back and running. So it was a total blackout. So engineers started looking at this quite deeply. And the U.S. electricity grid operators start really looking at that. So we had one this in 1989. So we got a glimpse of what could happen. Mm. We have been closely watching the effect of a CME since then. Mm -hmm. Usually associated with the CME, you get a solar flare. So the solar flare reaches us, as I told you, within eight minutes or 22 seconds. But then um, these particles, uh, which comes from the CME, by the time it starts from the sun and reaches here, we have a period about maybe 72 hours or something like that, three days or something like that. Yeah. To answer your question, yes, it can cause blackouts in some parts of the system. Why it breaks things? Right. Currently, the way we have our electricity system is around steady cycle. It's like a 50 hertz, as you know, because you plug it in your, any of your devices. Yep. You say, hey, it's a 50 hertz, and if you go to the U.S., it's a 60 hertz. So it's a neat little cycle which we have designed. Things muck that up quite frequently through lightning and things like that. But this particular one, uh, the CME, causes some issues with the Earth's magnetic circuit. Mm -hmm. What that causes is an induction effect, and uh, without getting too technical about the stuff, mm. what it induces is what is called as a DC current, right? And that goes through the transformer's ground, and it goes and kind of mucks the transformer's mind, you know, to a certain extent. It saturates, and right. if you don't really control it, it can blow the transformer up. Okay. Yeah. If we got a CME like 1859, mm. and it hits, would it be hemispheric? 
unfortunately in um, the equatorial uh, latitudes mm. uh, the effect have seen to be pretty minor because uh, the okay earth, in the tropics you mean yes that's right, right. and uh, something towards the polar levels uh, it can get a little bit more magnified the other thing is also depending upon the earth's um, geological structure people have found out that highly resistive igneous uh, bedrocks it could muck up the system a little bit so mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a couple of parameters which does affect the impact on where it hits and what it hits. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What would it be like the day after? Have all the transformers gone out? No, not really. I, I think what would happen is you could preventively shut out the system if you wanted to. For instance, uh, New Zealand is blessed because we currently have uh, between the North Island and South Island we have what is called as a HVDC link. So basically we have a structure which is um, an AC system, a 50 hertz system, which is on the North Island supplying the whole of North Island and a 50 hertz system which is supplying the whole of South Island system. And they're connected with one new technology which is the DC technology. They have been observing the DC part to the transformers at both ends because it naturally happens all the time. Mm. So those transformers would be capable of handling this stuff because it's already doing the DC and it's handling those things okay we expect that the CME would induce such a current and how do you control that and things like that so you could shut out the two parts of the system for instance North Island or South Island and right. and blackouts do happen in the world right so and and you could it's, it's something like restarting your computer you just restart it and do it the trick here is if you know that you have 72 hours notice then who is going to take that lead and say, yeah. hey, you know, let's do, let's, let, let's do it and let's be in out of power for three days. Hey, wouldn't it be a fun? And you could restart it back again because these things resets itself anyway. So right. Because the Carrington event did die out after some 72 hours or something like that. But 72 hours is a long time. And I wonder if people would be convinced this is something we have to do <laughs> because if you're going to leave your stuff on, it could get fried. That's where research comes in, uh, science comes in. We have a mm. better handle on uh, these events happening. Uh, we have experiments being done continuously. You are right when you mentioned that we dodged the bullet in 2012. I think it depends on the intensity of this event. It's it was a, a bad one. It's a bad one. It X, X class. X yes. class, right? Yeah. So Sounds flashed, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, Sounds like it's got teeth. So electricity could be affected. That's that's for sure. Would we come back on? Would it be resilient? Maybe yes. I would bet my guess on, hey, you know, mm. we could get back on because the, the sun has belched its stuff and it's reached us and we are just en- engaging with that, our system. Mm-hmm. And the Carrington even did pass and, and we could reset our systems. So that's possible. The communication is a very interesting one, uh, if I may, Graham. I'll pick up on the communication piece a little bit. Mm. And um, since the time of the Carrington event, which was more um, on the telegram, now we have satellite communications. They're in direct firing line. Yes. Uh, so I did ask a couple of my communication folk here and, and also one of the persons who's working on a research with me. Uh, he's part of Chorus um, and, and he shared some information with me. And he told, hey, you know, Nirmal, um, you have the uh, geostationary satellites, which is around like in the 36 kilometer mark around the equator. 
once again they get time and they are in the activity of solar flares all the time anyway and uh, once if they suspect that is going to be a uh, you know earth directed ones they would have times to maneuver them a little bit and it is possible that they always kind of uh, dodge uh, some of the solar flares and some of the cme events all the time so it's possible you might have a black you know a kind of a fading kind of a communication fading mm-hmm. cycle by the way he also mentioned that communication fading happens all the time mm-hmm. but it's to a certain extent when you know and with digital communication you could buffer your things up and and it it, it sounds as if it is quite Only seamless the power zone Yes, which comes back to the interdisciplinary of how the interdependence of infrastructure. Yeah. Oh, that's a fantastic one. That's the new research which I am doing. You can be as prepared as you can be and these interdependencies do affect, but they do give us time to 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 kind of restart and reset. So, this is not going to be a permanent kind of an event which is going to take 6 months to clear or something like that. Well, Thankfully, let's say that the power is out mm-hmm. after one of these events. Yep. it hasn't destroyed the internet but it may as well have unless you've got a generator mm. so many businesses ordinary people wouldn't be able to communicate as mm. they usually do mm. uh phones may be out mm-hmm. um so if we're going to get someone to repair the transformer that's blown up on my street mm. how do you call them Right. Well, very good question here, Graham. So I I hope I'm not touching some hornet's nest here. <laughs> I don't want to be inflammatory, but I'm trying to think it through. Yes. So let's pick one thing up at a time. Uh, the power to your homes could be affected and that gets affected all the time anyway. But all not the, everyone all at once. Not, oh, not all yeah, at once. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing. That's a, but uh, we um uh, I come from University of Auckland. It's exam time over there. The last blackout we had was in 2010. Do you remember that day? You know. Uh, you had one of those ground wires cutting off at Otahuhu. Oh, that's uh, right. That's right. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. In the month of June, uh, it was exam time. It struck at 3 o'clock or so. By the time the exam had already started right at yeah. like 2:30 or something like that so the exams was cancelled it was all shut you know and but we were up back up and running by 6 o'clock that evening you know mm-hmm. 30% or 40% of Auckland mm. so so it's an instant shock nothing really happened and i think we had one another blackout during i think uh, during the christmas shopping or something like that hamilton totally blacked out mm-hmm. and we have experienced that i think humans are resilient yeah i understand that but uh, i'm thinking this is why i asked about the hemispheric effect mm. this is a coronal mass ejection mm. hits the earth in the southern region let's say it's okay. quite quite bad yep Perth gone. Yep. Sydney, Melbourne gone. Okay. Sydney. Yep. Well, let Brisbane off. Oh yeah, we let them off, yeah. <laughs> That's more than your Otahu who cut and the exams <laughs> interrupted in Auckland University, isn't it? Yeah, you are absolutely right. So it it's almost like a massive restart of the whole system and uh, we have had a uh, continental scale blackouts in um nothing to do with CME but mm. we have the experience of 1965 New York blackout New York was out of power for uh, I don't know 3 or 4 days or something like that wow. and um there was a lot of social consequence to that um you can go into the internet and see what happened and things like that so this was a technical blackout it got really messy and 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 it just shut off mm. uh, so there is going to be social consequence consequence to this but i think uh, there's a lot of black start and restoration policies and things like that so if this were event where to happen it is you know once in how many years now 200 years or something mm-hmm. like that the last carrington event yeah. so it it would be a hundred that's just luck that's just like 100 155 years event you know 2012 and, we just missed it 
exactly and i think from a research perspective we would be doing a lot of measurements and things like yeah. that it would be yeah. great fun you know <laughs> but hey you know i'm not saying uh, it's going to um, it's going to create a pretty much havoc because we are dependent on electricity infrastructure more and, the, and more and more more and more and for the communication infrastructure that is going to be backup the water supplies and things like that um, can run you know uh, at least for a few days i think uh, there could be limited backup supplies and resilience coming in and things like that so mm. yeah it's going to be a very dramatic event right so uh, but i think it will test um, our uh, our dependence or the perceived dependence on electricity as you know can we live yeah. without that or not yeah. uh, but we wouldn't be going back to the stone ages or anything like that no no but mm. goodness me just trying to imagine the disruption without it you know when your computer goes down mm. oh it's a special feeling isn't it when you've you've, you've had a crashed computer not crashed i mean you know dead i sometimes a, shut my computer off because i want to be in peace you know? of course <laughs> but when you want it and everything from payroll to delivery systems yes. it's even between 2010 mm. and now mm. which is 2018 if you're listening mm. in the future mm. this is the past calling mm. and i hope you're okay <laughs> it's a big difference my work is completely different the way i communicate and mm. it's reliant on the internet anyone is working at a supermarket yes. a, a fitter and turner today needs the internet yes absolutely and i think fast forward maybe 40 years from now if we had a carrington event for instance that would be a even more interesting situation where it's going to be electric cars we are going to electrify everything electric train so we are going to go more and more into electricity going ahead so the mobility of people will be affected uh if you fast forward let's say 30 years or 40 years mm. from now where there's all we are fully electrified and move over into low carbon mm. uh, so you're absolutely right as we go with all promising technologies and things like that not having that is definitely going to crunch us into our behavior patterns so i take your point uh, it's 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 going to be you might be stuck somewhere and you know you don't have a petrol station because you the ev charging is there how about you wanting to land at heathrow oh that's going to be crazy uh, you'll be holed up there yeah. yeah yeah you're right all right you are one of the few people that are taking this into account as we build our infrastructure uh i hope you're not the only one we've got 72 hours what do we do the siren go off and they say prepare yes so uh, what this would uh, trigger what is called a national emergency in new zealand there would be an organization which have been engaging for the past 2 to 3 years which is called as a new zealand lifelines group they coordinate the emergency response for the whole country and mm. i think in new zealand uh, it triggers a civil defense um, uh, arrangement and i think um, in the in a parliament in, in the underground bunker you know people civil defense people get on mm-hmm. and and they would try all alternate communications alternate methods and things like that so it triggers a whole bunch of emergency response immediately right so we do it for other events but this would be a national emergency across the whole country if the whole new zealand gets blacked out for instance now i just remembered i dropped a question and i failed to pick it up mm. and that was okay the, the power's out mm. half the internet's out satellites mm. are damaged mm. and you're saying yeah we can rebuild but mm. how do you call up bob who's really good at this and say we've got a transformer that needs fixing at this location mm. if you can't get in touch with bob the electricity network is a very strange machine which we have built if current is not flowing you can actually measure it from those places do you use electricity to measure it with those 
the el- miniature is not going. So there are some mechanisms, there are some black starts and things like that. So most of these restarting procedure does not rely on communication. It depends on just the infrastructure coming, going up and uh, charging it up. So we will have to go back to the basics to start this whole system up. So there's not a reliance on, on the communication infrastructure to restart right. the black start. Because we have 29 distribution line companies in this country. Most of them have backup plans. They would be rolling with their diesel trucks and things like that. Yeah. And you have limited amount of supplies to do. You have battery backups and things like that. Well, let's have our fingers crossed. But uh, it's an interesting thing to consider as every day the gap between us having an electricity supply and not becomes more and more and more imperative, doesn't it? Higher and higher up a cliff. It is right. But one day we may have to jump off. We, 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 are, we trust that much, much more now. Mm. So uh, I take your point. I think uh, we have to be resilient enough. We have to prepare for these events. Yeah, it's good challenges for the new engineers, scientists of uh, mm. tomorrow, you know, uh, preparing for these kinds of dependence on, on uh, the electricity infrastructure, the communication infrastructure, the internet, uh, all those interdependent infrastructure, which does affect our daily lives and yeah. the quality of our life, basically. Yeah. 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 Fascinating stuff. Nirmal Nair, thank you very much. Associate Professor, Auckland University, Computer and Electrical Engineering Studies. I did my research around CME and got scared with a whole bunch of stuff and <laughs> they were throwing some things at and I was thinking, really? All the transformer would be fried. I had to look at my protection. I had to look at my this. But hey, you know, conversations like these definitely help and it tries to bring in a little bit of realism yeah. and preparedness. So I'm a protection engineer, so I, I try to look at all the hidden black swans out there. Yeah. This is one of our biggest black swan, actually. Yeah, because we haven't experienced one of these in the age of modern electricity. So we shall see and all the best. I do appreciate it. Good one. Nirmal Nair, cheers. Thanks, Graham. New sport and weather coming up next at 11 o'clock. If you're taping the rugby and travelling around, uh, fingers and ears, no spoilers during the programme, but this is news at the top of the hour, so it will be news. And after that, we head right into, directly, it's straight into, magazine's debut album from 1978, a cracker, I reckon. It's called Real Life.